It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, one name, two fates. Wes Moore was a real-life success story. A young man from the inner city made good when he learned about another Wes Moore, who would soon be sentenced to life in prison. There were some striking coincidences. The two Wes Moores not only shared a name, but they were about the same age, both born in urban Baltimore, raised by single mothers, in trouble a lot as kids. Yet one went on to become a Rhodes Scholar, White House Fellow, and rising business star. The other went on to a lifetime of incarceration. That got Wes Moore thinking about his own good fortune, how things might have turned out differently, and the circumstances that influence us, for better or worse. He began writing to his namesake behind bars, which led to a correspondence, a series of prison visits, and a deepening relationship between the two men. Now Wes Moore has written a book about their two lives, the ways in which their stories are and aren't alike, and the sometimes thin line between a happy fate and a regrettable one. The book is called The Other Wes Moore. Wes Moore joined me recently by phone to talk about it, and we'll hear that conversation in just a moment. Now on to today's interview with Wes Moore. Uh, you know, to read about your accomplishments at this stage of your life, you're how old? I am now 31. 31. And I'm reading Rhodes Scholar, Phi Beta Kappa, football star, decorated combat veteran, public speaker, rising star in the business world. You sound, and I hope you don't take offense to this, but you sound disgustingly perfect. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to take that, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate it, I think. <laughs> But I, I tell you what, I mean, that, that was one of the things uh, that I think once people see from the book that uh, that things have been far from perfect, and, uh, and and I've been far from perfect. And you know, that was actually one of the cool things about the book is is really that the book isn't isn't a way to highlight the uh, the exception. Um, you know, the book really is is what I hope to be something that, that really calls question as to why we have exceptions in our society in the first place. So that's been, you know been great about the process. Well, well, convince me, Wes. I mean, in what ways were you you really a bad boy? Well, I think one thing, you know, and again, even just to do this book, I did over 200 hours of interviews with Wes and his friends and family and my friends and family. And the thing I really realized was how little separates us from another life altogether. I mean, you fundamentally had two kids who would, uh, you know, who were not only, uh, you know, growing up in, in similar neighborhoods, but also, you know, around the same age, who both had academic and disciplinary troubles growing up. I mean, I was, you know, I was suspended, you know, suspended multiple times when I was younger. I was on academic and disciplinary probation when I was younger. I was, uh, you know, I was, you know, both Wes and I felt the you know felt that the the grip of, of handcuffs on our wrist before we were even teenagers uh, back in our neighborhoods. So this really was a situation that had it not been for intervention, had it not been for people being involved in our life, had it not been for some uh, aggressive and, and pretty creative intervention, that um, that things really could have been very different in my life. Mm-hmm. We'll we'll get into a little more detail, but I, I should just note that. 
the reason handcuffs were slapped on your wrist was was for tagging, you know, for graffiti. Uh, graffiti, yeah. In his case, you know, it was the first time it was for actually pursuing a kid with a knife. Right. And at another point for, for shooting a, another young man. So so there was a difference in degree, obviously, in the kinds of things you were into. Uh, I don't want to paint you as a, a real hoodlum. Um, right. Unless... No, and, that, and, that's, and that's true, and, that, and that's very fair, and, and thank you for that as well. Um, I also know, though, and, you know, both from... From personal experiences and just from uh, you know from from working with 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 kids from so many different neighborhoods for so long is it's amazing how how quickly small things can become big things mm. and uh, and it's amazing how quickly or how or how fine that line sometimes can be uh, between kids thinking that certain things are, are wrong and certain things are tolerable and so that's where I think particularly as you're going through this process and this journey into adulthood you have so many kids who sometimes will get lost and get confused in that process and the things that we all just think oh we just shouldn't do. Uh, it's amazing how kids will can just rationalize them at times. You got lost, uh, I, I believe you say in your book, in, in a kind of unlikely place. Um, when your family moved to the South Bronx back in the early 80s, your mother, who was determined to get you a, a first-class education, sent you to a really good private school. Yeah. Uh, and you say you got lost there. This was the, the Riverdale Country School? Is that That's what it's right. called? Yeah, that's right. Which is, which, which was, and, and and still is to this day, an extraordinary school. Uh, it was just a place where I, where I, you know, really just lost my footing. Uh, I was going through so many different processes of transition at that point, and I think that school just added another layer of complexity that um, that I just wasn't prepared for the transition for, uh, and particularly because if this was a school that was across town. It was I, I was one of the only kids in my neighborhood that actually had to go across town to go to school, and I increasingly found myself being too quote unquote rich for the kids in my neighborhood who didn't understand why I had to be the one to go across town to go to school and I couldn't go to school in the neighborhood like everybody else. And I increasingly found myself too quote unquote poor for the kids in my school who didn't understand why I lived all the way uh, you know on the other side of the Bronx. And so I really found myself just searching for, for my footing and really ending up uh, ending up lost. In many cases, in many many scenarios, uh, I was looking for acceptance. I was looking for 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 belonging, and and I found myself, you know, increasingly searching for that belonging in the wrong places, and then uh, and and trouble. Just uh, when when kids are in that situation, trouble has a funny way of uh, of finding them. Mm. You were you were growing up in the South Bronx at a time when it was sort of the poster child for urban uh, blight. I mean, yeah. it was depicted as a war zone. Uh, a lot of um, abandoned and, and collapsed buildings, huge drug traffic, a lot of murders. Y you managed to avoid the worst of that, though, I mean, in, in terms of your own involvement. You did not get into to drug trafficking, uh, serious felonies, any of that. Well, that that's right, and, and uh, you know, and I was very fortunate for that, uh, you know, because there were a lot of my friends who did get caught up, and, you know, one of the things I say in the cover of the book is uh, the, the chilling truth is that his story could have been mine. The tragedy is that my story could have been his, and, and people say, well, how do you know that? And I say, well, one of the reasons I know it is because for so many kids that I grew up with, uh, the, you know, the, their, their stories much closer resemble Wes's than they do mine. Um, and so I, I know how difficult it is for so many kids, particularly those who grow up in precarious areas and, and in precarious uh, circumstances, how quickly it is for them to get caught up and, uh, and get lost in the whole process. You got kicked out of Riverdale, is that right? I, w I, was, on, I was placed on academic and disciplinary probation, so even though um, <laughs> there's probably a lot of different terms and definitions, uh, as, as I say, uh, they weren't excited about me coming back. <laughs> I see, I see. And, and it, it was your, your mom's decision and, and that of your grandparents who were taking care of you uh, along with your mom to uh, send you to a, a military academy at that point. 
That's exactly right. And and my mother had been threatening me with military school ever since I was, uh, you know, eight years old um, because I was just having a series of bad grades and getting in trouble in the classroom and in the neighborhood. And finally she said, she, you know, she said, I'm going to send you away. And I was like, yeah, okay, I know, I know. And then a couple of years went by, and then she said, I'm, I'm going to send you away. And she said, in fact, you're going next week. And, uh, and she sent me off to a military school where I had a mandatory year uh, inside this military school, Valley Forge Military Academy in Pennsylvania. And, and when I first went there, I hated every minute of it. I, I, I kept on trying to run away. I literally ran away five times in the first four days. But, uh, but eventually, after I stopped trying to run away, uh, the, the place started to make sense to me. And, and I started to better understand the idea of accountability and responsibility and, and leadership. Uh, and so it, it was really at that point um, while there that I think I started going through a psychological change, which helped, uh, you know, which helped alter my perspective. You tried to escape five times, you say, in the first four days at military school? That's right. Basically, there, there's fences around the school, and, uh, and I would just uh, <laughs> repeatedly just, every time they turned around, I was trying to run out the gates. And after the fourth time I ran away, uh, a squad leader who was one of the cadets in charge of me, he, he drew me a map on how to get to the train station. And I looked at this map like he just handed me a piece of gold. I was so excited about it. And, uh, and finally I decided to try my, my great escape later on that night. And later on that night I started running through the woods with a little bag in my, in my little map trying to find how to get to this train station that I knew would take me home. And finally, I just started crying because I was found myself going deeper into the woods, and I was getting scared, and, and I had no idea where I was. And, you know, and I was a kid from the city, so I didn't know anything about the woods at that point. And uh, finally, I started hearing more leaves, you know, leaves rattling and, and, um, and, and sticks breaking, and I thought it was just wild animals or something. And I realized it was my chain of command because they'd actually followed me out, and the map was fake. They just wanted to see how bad I wanted to go home, and, and that night they got their answer. I was picturing hounds and uh, and shackles, but it wasn't quite that bad. It wasn't quite that bad, but it was it was it was it was my uh, my twelve year old attempt at my Shawshank Redemption uh, <laughs> escape route, <laughs> which uh, which fell flat on its face as they as they dragged me back to campus. But but that place Valley Forge really did turn your life around. It did, and, and you know one thing I'm I'm very clear about too is Valley Forge is an extraordinary place, and, and it, you know it's really helped change my life. Um, but it, it was it was not just the physical environment, uh, the change in the physical environment that I think really helped alter my uh, my way, but it was the psychological change. It was the fact that I you know was then I st- I started to understand I was part of something bigger. I started to understand accountability and and and, and real leadership when when I was put in charge of something. It was those type of things that I think really helped my uh, you know helped my process. Of, of changing things around. Mm. So you're saying it wasn't it wasn't necessarily being bossed around or or being subordinate. It was actually when you were given some responsibility that things really changed for you. Absolutely, and and I think and I think that's what all kids are looking for. I think kids, you know, particularly young boys, you know, young boys are type A personalities. They want to be in charge of something. They want to feel some type of responsibility, and 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 I don't think it's that different for for Wes or I. And you know, think about it. When we were both at similar points in our life, what I found inside a military school when they said, "Okay, more," you know, we're now going to make you a sergeant. We're going to give you a squad. And this squad, in this squad, you know, you're now responsible for it. If they do well, you get praised. If they do poorly, you're going to get castigated. And I took that seriously because I, I, I wanted, I wanted to be recognized for my leadership, and I wanted to be part of a structure that recognized it. But Wes wanted the same thing, and I think what Wes did, you know, back in Baltimore, uh, he found it within the drug structure. 
And, and in the drug structure, one thing I, I, I'm clear about in the book and I try to lay out is, uh, is the drug structure is very similar to a Fortune 500 company or military unit. You start off as a lookout or you start off as a runner, and then you graduate and you go on to be a houseboy and you go to be a houseman and you go on from there, you go to be muscle, and from there you go be a lieutenant. And so there's a real structure that I think is, is very enticing to a lot of young kids who are coming up and, and that's what they see and that's what they know, and particularly when that's what the expectation is. Uh, there's a scene, uh, Wes and I are talking once in the, in the book, we're sitting in prison. And, uh, and I ask him, I say, do you think that, you're, that we're products of our environments? And he said, no, actually, I think we're products of our expectations. And I thought that was a really important point and a really important distinction, that we are products of our expectations, because the, ex- the external expectations that are placed on us uh, almost inherently become the internal expectations that we place upon ourselves. Well, in your case, the expectations were quite high. Um, and if we look at your family history, it makes sense. You're the, the child of two college graduates, your grandfather, also a college graduate, and a, a man, it sounds to me like a man with real, um, real talent and ambition. Uh, he became a Presbyterian minister, but at one point in college, he actually met Kwame Nkrumah, future president of Ghana, who, who became friends and urged him to go into politics. And your, it sounds like your grandparents and your mom, because uh, we haven't said this yet, but your father died when you were quite young. It sounds like they just would not let you fail. <laughs> no, that, that's right. And, and I think that, you know, even though I was giving them every reason to give up on me, and uh, the amazing thing about, you know, my, my mother, my grandparents, and, and so many other supports that I had was that they saw things in me that I didn't even see in myself. And I think it took a while for it to come out. It, it really did because I, I really didn't. I was, I, was, I was pretty aimless and pretty apathetic, quite honestly, about the way things were going. And, and if I got seized, I was perfectly happy because I said, hey, I'm under the radar, uh, and no one's going to bother me. And that's really all I wanted. But I think that, uh, you know, having those expectations placed upon you and knowing that, uh, that you mean more to more people than just yourself is an imp- incredibly important thing for young people to feel. So as I was thinking about who are my role models, who are the people in my life that were helping to guide me and support me, uh, that became very important and I think something that really helped uh, help set the azimuth for the direction that I went in. Now, now you, you learned um, about the other Westmore. When you were uh, just, you had just been awarded a, a Rhodes Scholarship, is that right? Yeah, well, actually, the, the, for the very first time I heard about him was I was in South Africa. And uh, I, was, uh, I was, you know, there for a study abroad program as a student at Johns Hopkins University. And uh, my mother and I were on the phone, and she said, I've got something crazy to tell you. She said, the police are looking for a man in your neighborhood. There are wanted posters all over your neighborhood. And the police are looking for a man wanted in connection to the murder of a police officer. And they're looking for Wes Moore. And there are signs that say, if you see Westmore, do not approach because he's, he's assumed to be armed and very dangerous. And that was the very first time that I'd ever heard his name. Uh, and later on, as I came back, and as you said, you know, kind of the, uh, the day after I received the Rhodes Scholarship, the Baltimore Sun ran a piece on my life and my childhood and, uh, and how I had some issues coming up. But, you know, I'd received this award. And at the same time, they had been running a whole series on this crime, this terrible tragedy. That, uh, that killed um, that killed a police sergeant who was, who was moonlighting as a security guard at a, at a jewelry store, and uh, and the fact that one of the one of the men that um, that they caught after a 12-day national manhunt was a man named Wes Moore, who, who turns out to be about the same age as you, grew up in Baltimore, uh, and uh, there's some other parallels in your two lives. Absolutely, um, you write that you just couldn't get him off your mind then for for a couple of years. 
I couldn't, and and I thought I could, and, and you know, it, it's funny because as I was going through that process, I was like, maybe I'm just being, you know, over, you know, melodramatic or narcissistic or whatever, but I just couldn't shake it because I couldn't. I wanted to get my arms wrapped wrapped around this idea: was how does this happen? How do two kids who have similar backgrounds end up in two completely different places? And where I'm heading off to England on this scholarship, on a road scholarship, and he's heading off to Jessup Maximum Security Facility for the rest of his life. And uh, and so it, that that's really what pushed me to want to actually write him. And so I ended up writing him a note in prison a few years after I learned about him, and uh, just explaining who I was and asking him a whole series of questions that I that I wanted some answers to. And and to my surprise, really, a month later, I received a note back from Jessup Correctional Institution from Westmore, and that was how the process began. Mm. What did he think? Were you talking about writing a book at that point? No, not at all. I mean, honestly, at that point, it was just more my my pure curiosity. Um, I, I just I just wanted to I wanted answers. I wanted to know how that happened. I I asked him about questions about his kids because I knew he had four children. Um, from the articles I read, I, I knew that his brother was the actual trigger man that day. So I asked him questions about his brother, um, and did he ever get a chance to see his brother? Because I knew his brother was in prison as well. Uh, and so that was really it. And then um, it was really later on. I have a friend who's an author. Uh, her name is Terry Williams, and she uh, she said to me she knew about my relationship that I had gotten no West, and she said, uh, you know, I think there's something more here. I think this is a book. And at first, I was very reluctant to do it for a whole collection of different reasons. And uh, but there were really two things that really pushed me to do it. One was I thought about the tragic death of the police sergeant, and I said, you know, if I can do something that can help keep these tragedies from happening again, then I thought I should do it. In, in the words of of, uh, of Edmund Burke, all it, you know, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. And and then I thought about something that West told me when I talked to West about it. He said, you know, I've wasted every opportunity I've ever had in life, and I'm going to die in here. And if you can do something that can help people understand the ramifications for their decisions and also help people understand the, the neighborhoods these decisions are being made in, then I think you should do it. And those are the two things that really pushed me to say, okay, I, I want to see if I can do it, you know, turn, turn this into something useful. So you took on, on the job of telling your own life story and also his life story, since he wasn't in a position to write it himself, I guess. That's right. Yeah, and so what I did was I, I did over 200 hours of interviews with Wes and his friends and family and my friends and family uh, just to make sure I was getting the facts and the feel of the story right. And, uh, and I would wake up at you know, 5, 5.30 every morning uh, for, two, for two years. And just, you know, and every morning just get up and write. And I tell you, it, 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 uh, when you get up in the morning and you start your day by reading articles about a, uh, a police officer, a, a father of five, who, uh, who was a 13-year veteran of the police force and who just had triplets and who went to work one day and didn't come home, or, or you, 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 you start your day reading letters from someone who's going to spend the rest of their life in prison, it really does add a, a context to the rest of your day and helps to keep everything in perspective. You know, the title of your book is The Other Westmore, and on, on the surface it means that other guy, the guy who's in prison, who just happens to have your name. But I'm wondering, does it also refer to another Westmore in, in you? I mean, did you think of it that way, too? I, I did, and you know, when we, we, it was actually a, an interesting conversation we had about the title oh, for a while, because at first I was very reluctant about that title for a whole collection of different reasons. I said, I don't want my name in the title, and, and you know, I just don't, you know, I don't think it, it really sounds, you know, I, I don't like, what, is, what does the other mean? And, and, and my publisher said something to me, which I thought was really interesting, and it helped turn it, uh, because they said, uh, Wes, you know, adding the other Wes more, what you have to understand is that title isn't about you, and it's not even about him. It's about all the others, all the others in our society who, who, who we, we, we don't talk about, 
who we ignore, and, and how how little separates us from another life altogether, and how it's how how going through a process of exploration is not a process of glorification, but it's important to understand all of the others in our society because by understanding the others, it also helps us to understand ourselves a whole lot better too, and so all, all at once that title started making a lot of sense to me. What did it help you understand about yourself? I think it really first it really helped me to appreciate my life better. I, I, there, there were so many stories in the, in the book, and even stories that didn't even make the final cut of the book, uh, about my family, about their struggles and sacrifices and, and challenges and, and mistakes uh, and, and, and celebrations that they had within the family that I had no idea about. Um, and so this process, going through and doing you know, just dozens and dozens and dozens of, of hours of interviews with them and really helping to explore my life, really helped me to appreciate the sacrifices that they, that they made for me and the decisions that they made on, on, be, on behalf of me. When I, when I just wasn't mature enough or, or, or ready to make a lot of those decisions by myself. Uh, and I think another thing that really helped me to understand and appreciate was the role that I want to play in this larger conversation of how do we improve our, our community and, and society. I, I think, you know, it's, one thing I'm a firm believer of is, of is that public service doesn't have to be an occupation. But public service needs to be a way of life. And, and one thing I believe with this book is that this book really is a, is, is a contribution to that larger conversation about public service because this book is about much more than just these two kids. This book is about much more than, than, than Baltimore. It's about much more than one socioeconomic group. You know, this book is about all of us. It's about the decisions that we make, the ramifications for those decisions, and the people we have in our lives who are helping us to make those decisions. And, and so that's why I, I, this book has really just emboldened me to want to be a part of the larger conversation. Well, you're clearly a believer that, that forces outside of ourselves help shape us. Um, yeah. And if I look at your, your two biographies, the, your biography and that of uh, Wes Moore, who's in prison, I see some, some, some clear differences. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, you're both about the same age, both from Baltimore, both black, um, both had some troubles as kids, although his were, were more severe. And you both grew up without fathers, but your father, who was, by the way, a, a radio journalist, um, mm-hmm. died when you were three. Right. His father, on the other hand, really abandoned him and, and wanted nothing to do with him, didn't even recognize him at one point, even right. though he was still living in the same same city. Same neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. Same neighborhood. So there's one huge difference. I mean, it's, it seems to me that your father, though he wasn't there physically, was there for you in some other way. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. There's actually a, a part in the book when Wes and I are talking, and, and, and the, the, this idea of fatherhood really comes up quite a bit uh, when Wes and I talk, and, and not just because of the roles that our fathers uh, played or didn't play in our life, but also because Wes is now, in addition to being a father, Wes is also a grandfather. Wes became a grandfather at 33 years old. And, uh, and what, there's a part when Wes and I are talking, and he, say, and he says to me, he said, listen, your father wasn't there because he couldn't be, and my father wasn't there because he chose not to be, and therefore we're going to mourn their absence in different ways, which I thought was an incredibly important and good point. But I think one thing Wes and I both agree with is that that hole that's created in, in young kids, and particularly in young boys who are growing up without their father, regardless of the reason that that hole is there, that hole is real. And you'll find a lot of times where kids will spend that time trying to fill that hole in a lot of ways that, quite honestly, are not only unproductive, but, uh, but, quite, but, uh, but in many cases dangerous. 
So in your case, maybe that led to some of the, the tagging that you did. <laughs> well, you know, I think what it did, it just it led to a higher level of confusion. Uh-huh. Um, I think it led to a lot of anger. It led to a lot of pain. It, it led to it led to a, a sense of apathy, and, and quite honestly, it led to a sense of just this, this, these blanket excuses that I would make over my actions and over everything that I did. Uh, I, I had a really difficult time comprehending why my father had to go, and particularly because when he died, when I was you know he died right in front of me when I was three and a half years old, and I didn't understand it then because I knew he had gone somewhere. I just didn't know where. And I knew that he had he had moved on. I just didn't understand why. And it wasn't something that we talked a lot about. I know my mother was having a lot of difficulties dealing with the transition, so we just didn't talk about it. And so as I got older, and I started to really appreciate the fact that he was gone and gone for good, um, it really became something that became a real source of pain and anger amongst me in, in, in me. And then I think I really just helped it to manifest itself in a lot of the, the academic and disciplinary troubles that I was getting into. It was, by the way, a really tragic death. I mean, he sounds like a great guy, and he died unnecessarily because he'd been misdiagnosed at a hospital. He had a treatable condition and, and died there on the floor in front of you and, and your mom and your, and your sister, yes? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, uh, you know as it was something that I really didn't think of. I, I didn't think a whole lot about even as I got older until I started this process. I didn't even understand the circumstances uh, behind it until I got older. And, um, and you know, I really only have two memories of him. Uh, the first memory was once when my mother got mad at me for, uh, for, for, for hitting my sister because one of my mother's big pet peeves, and, and not just when I was younger, but to this day, is, uh, is, is any time she sees a man hitting a woman. And I think a lot of that come, came from her personal experiences and, and being in abusive relationships before my father. Um, but then, uh, but then uh, the only other memory that I have, oh, and then he came out to my room to explain to me why my mother was so mad at me. And, uh, and the only other memory I have of him was when I watched him die. Yeah. Um, you know, other, other differences and similarities in, in your life and, and the other Wes Moore's life, um, your mom made it through college, your dad also, your grandfather, as we said. His mother had to drop out because yeah. uh, Pell Grants were cut back, and she had really tried to make it through college, but without that financial aid, she couldn't do it. She had to quit. And, and that was really heartbreaking because, you know, one thing we see is, you know, this is not a story of, of, of one mother loving their children more than the other. Uh, I mean, this is, you have two mothers who care deeply about their children and, and two mothers who, who really wanted the best for, for their kids. But, um, but the role of education plays so heavily in this story. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, Mary, Wes's mother, was the first one in her family to go to college. She graduated from Baltimore City Community College, and she was accepted to Johns Hopkins University. Uh, and and she, there she was at Johns Hopkins, and then she received a note telling her that the Pell Grants are being slashed and her, and her grants were being cut. And she had to drop out the next day and never has not been back to college uh, since. And the, I can't help but think how her life could have been different had she had a chance to graduate from a school like Johns Hopkins, and not, not just because of the degree and, and, and the piece of paper that goes along with it, but also for the connections and the networks and, and the exposure that it would have given her. I can't, I can't help but think how things would have been different for her, uh, but also how things would have been different for her family. Mm. Well, another difference I noticed, and I, I think you uh, write this book in such a way as to, to uh, highlight these uh, important events where, where you and Wes sort of took different paths, um, you actually have a middle name that's uh, Shona, an African name. Watende. Yes, and Watende. Yes, and it means. Yes, and uh, my, my, it's funny because my my father wanted one ma- one name and my mother wanted the other, so they uh, so they decided to give me both. 
And uh, so my father wanted Watende, which means uh, revenge will not be sought. And, uh, and my mother wanted Omari, which, is, uh, which means the highest. Revenge will not be sought. That's, that's a really interesting choice of a name. It is. Oh. And, and it's interesting because my mother never understood why he was so insistent on that name. Because she, she always said, she's like, listen, he has your first name. He has Wesley, so why should you get to pick his middle name, too? Uh, there should be some equity in this. And, and my father insisted that Watende be a part of me. He said he loved the meaning and he, and he loved the name. And, and, I, and I kind of ironically, uh, as, as you point out, um, you know, after he passed away, uh, there was so much anger that I had inside of me about him leaving and, and everything like that. But, um, but as I got older and I began to better understand the, the, um, you know, the, the, the occasion around his death, and I, began to, and I traveled to South Africa, uh, all, at, all at once that name, Watende, and Revenge Will Not Be Sought, uh, started to mean something. And I, and I started to get a better understanding of why, in so many ways, he might have insisted that that be a part of me. The other Wes, on the other hand, you know, is growing up in the inner city uh, code of honor that says revenge is sought. And there's a couple of incidents where he goes after people with an eye for a gun to get uh, some payback. Uh, and and that, uh, that impulse, you know, obviously gets him in deep trouble. With you, uh, you, you don't seem to have that. Uh, and, in fact, there's an incident where... You could have gotten in trouble, um, yeah. you know, real ugly incident when you were in military school. You were with a friend in the nearby town of uh, Wayne, Pennsylvania. Absolutely. And uh, some locals, uh, apparently racist, you know, threw some slurs at you and, and, and also uh, threw some object at you, smashing yeah. you in the mouth. And uh, you didn't go after them, even though you could have. Well, you know, and, um, and now is one thing, I, you know, we talk about the importance of education. Education, to me, isn't, isn't just about the importance of reading and writing and arithmetic, but it's also the importance of critical thinking. And it's also the importance of understanding consequences and, and being able to think about those consequences. And, and one, of the, one of the reasons that I, I, uh, I, I like the, those anecdotes and being able to put them in is to show how these choices that we make that are seemingly small, can make such a big difference uh, in our lives and, and, and the, the long-term ramifications of what we do. It, it, was, it was a seemingly small thing that when I got hit in the, in, the, in the face that I didn't try to retaliate, that I decided to run back. And I remember in the book I talked about how I was almost angry at myself for, for, for reacting that way, where I said, you know, I, I, you know my, for, what I should do is stay here and fight. What I should do is stay out here and, 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 and get some revenge. Um, but then I realized that you know what was the best, what what was the worst case scenario, and what was the best case scenario. And the fact is that worst case scenario far outweighed what that best case scenario could have been. And it's that kind of critical thinking that I think is extraordinarily important for um, for for all young people as they're coming up. Now, not many of us can actually exercise critical thinking when we've been smashed in the mouth with a bottle right. or a rock and and had a a really ugly racial taunt thrown at us. Right. I mean, how is it that you were able to even think at that point? Well, I think part of it, I think it was probably a collection of a lot of things. I think part of it was probably a collection of fear because there were a lot of kids in that car, and, uh, and, and you just weren't sure how the whole thing would turn out. And I think part of it was, you, you know, you just started think, to think about, okay, what, what, were, what are the consequences if this thing goes, goes even if it goes well, or if it, particularly if it goes bad? Um, and, I, and I thought about my mother. I thought about what she would say. I thought about uh, the, the, my cadets, the, the, the cadets that I was responsible for back on campus, because at that time I was a platoon sergeant, so I had all these cadets that were under me, and, and so I had to be responsible for them. Um, but so it, just, it, it allowed me to really take a step back. And even, even that split second that you can take a step 
back and think about and, and put things into context can make the world a difference about what actions we take. Um, because as, as we saw, not only with, with other cases in my life, but particularly in some of the other cases in Wes's life that you highlight, uh, making the wrong decision at times, at times when, when a crucial decision needs to be made can be pretty unforgiving. Mm. Now, now that incident I just mentioned was really one of the few racial incidents that, that, that happened in your book. Yeah. Doesn't seem like, you know, explicitly race played a big part in these stories. But, but it's there implicitly, I think, in, in what happened to the other West. I mean, the, the kind of conditions he grew up in, yeah. which <laughs> are disproportionately, uh, you know, experienced by, by inner city black kids and not by white kids. Yeah. Well, I, I think the one thing I, I, you know, wanted to, you know, is, is I think very clear throughout the book is, you know, particularly when you're talking about issues of, of, of socioeconomic disparities, it's difficult to separate uh, race and socioeconomic disparities, uh, unfortunately, uh, because because when you look at trend lines, they uh, they uh, they do lie so close to one another in many cases. But I think one thing is also to be, uh, it's important to remember as well, though, is that this. These incidences and in the, in these and in the ramifications of our choices are much bigger than you know what what race we we, we tick off on on, on census forms um, because the challenges that people have and the, and the challenges of dealing with ramifications of decisions and being in the lives of people who are helping to, you know and that are helping you to make good decisions uh, are, are things that, that that translate well past racial lines or even socioeconomic lines because you can find people who 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 in no way can relate to Baltimore or in no way can relate to African American uh, you know uh, childhood or, or anything along those lines but the thing they can relate to is the people who they have in their life who help them, the people they have in their life who did not help them, and how their life now, in many cases, is a culmination of the decisions they made when they were younger. So you're making the point that race doesn't have to be a limiting factor. It doesn't, and you know, there's there's actually one point in the book where I where I say, uh, you know, I, I want to be very clear that that being black or relatively poor, or being from the Bronx or being from Baltimore, that uh, that I think I really made my journey into manhood when I realized that despite all these other factors, uh, that I they would I would never allow them to limit me, I would never never allow them to define me. When, when you uh, went to uh, Riverdale uh, School, private school in the Bronx, you were one of the few black students there. Yes. Yeah. And uh, then you went off to the military academy. Um, was that mostly white also? That was, yeah. So, so in a way, you were um, being exposed to environments that are representative of a lot of the world uh, in America, uh, the business world and the oh, world yeah. of, of politics and power. Was that a good thing then? Um, is that a good learning experience for someone who wants to get out there and succeed? Well, I, th- I think for all people, increased exposure is a good thing. Um, you know, any any time people have the opportunity to step out of their comfort zone, uh, is a good thing for their long term development. If you if you're used to urban areas and you go spend time in rural areas, it's a good thing. If you're used to one part of the country and you can spend time in the other part of the country, I think that's a good thing. If you're used to the United States and you leave the United States, I think that's a positive thing. And I think, quite honestly, uh, you know, one of the things I think I've been you know been able to do is I've been able to transition well into different environments, and I've been able to understand people from 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 multiple uh, different backgrounds and, and and you know different perspectives. And I think part of that has been because of uh, of because of my upbringing, and because of the fact that I, I I never there there are a lot of things that that seem that seem relatively new to people as they get older, but because of exposure, uh, and because I had my eyes opened at a very young age to a lot of different things. Uh, there's nothing that not only doesn't surprise me too much, but there's also nothing that I can't empathize with because I understand so many different perspectives of life, uh, and I think that's actually been a really good thing for my development. 
a kid who grew up in the South Bronx who, you know, witnessed firsthand uh, all kinds of urban decay and crime and stuff like that, but who is now, um, if I understand right, an investment banker? Well, yeah, investment professional working up in New York, yeah. Yeah. I bet you're pretty um, rare among your colleagues in being able to maybe uh, recite some rhymes from Chub Rock or EPMD. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's funny. It's, it's not lost to me that, uh, that you know, even working up, up in New York, I mean, I'm literally, uh, you know, and even though they seem a world away, I, I'm, I'm only working, what, you know, 15, 20 miles away from the, the house in the Bronx that I grew up in, um, which is extraordinary. And it's the same house that my grandmother still lives in. So, uh, so you know, it's 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 pretty amazing sometimes, and and and, and never, I never allow myself to forget that, that uh, you know, regardless of, and I and again, I've I've had a chance to to see the world, I've had a chance to to study in England and and, and travel all over the globe, and and uh, and, and climb Mount Kilimanjaro and, and work in the White House and fight for my country in Afghanistan, and and a whole bunch of amazing experiences uh, that I'm just so thankful for, thankful for having the opportunity to do, but I'll never forget where I came from, and I'll never forget who I am. Getting back to my earlier question, do you do you think though? I mean, to, to put it in really you know sort of bluntly racial terms, do you think that you had an advantage though in going to schools where there were a lot of white kids, especially powerful and wealthy ones, and you could sort of learn the way that world works? You know, at a, at an early age when maybe some other kids from your same neighborhood, South Bronx, never had that chance. They they grew up in more isolated, in a more isolated world, cut off from from the world of money and power. Well, I I think the um. It's a, it's a good question, and I think the important thing for me was, was this: not necessarily, you know, taking me out and placing me in in, in, in schools where I was a where I was a minority, or uh, or taking me across town and taking me out of the of the neighborhood and the environment. But I think what happened was it was really more important was that so was that psychological change that took place. That was, I think, the the best thing for my growth, and that really was the best thing for um for for my development. I, I think that you know increased exposure. Is a good thing, period. But uh, but also, I know that one of the places that I got most lost was when I was sent across town to go to a private school where uh, where where I was in, in in a distinct minority. So I think if that transition happens without any type of uh, without any type of transition, mm. if if that happens and, and you're just kind of thrown in the middle of the pool and you're just asked to swim without any swimming lessons first, uh, it can become not just jarring, but in, in some ways stunting. So um so I think that has to be considered as well that it's not just about changing the physical environment if we want to really con- you know help help people particularly those who come in in um in, in less than desirable neighborhoods or precarious neighborhoods but I think it really it is about the psychological change and really almost altering the neighborhoods as well becomes much more important. I, I imagine you've thought a lot about this but if you could somehow insert yourself into the life of the young Westmore I, t- I mean the other Westmore the Westmore who is now doing life without parole in prison, if you could somehow, you know, as an adult, go back there and, and intervene in his life, what's the one thing you would most want to try? Oof. Wow. Um, good question. Uh, there, are, there are a few things that I think would have really made the world a difference. Um, one is I, I think the importance of mentors cannot, cannot be, um, be overstated. And, and having people in your life who you look up to who are positive role models. Uh, one thing I firmly believe about kids is that kids will learn. The question is what are they learning and who's teaching them? 
and and I think that if I if I could, I would have loved to have people get involved uh, in Wes's life. I would have loved to get involved in a young Wes's life um, at, at the point when at the point when you knew he was still impressionable, and the point when you knew that we could really still alter his future. Because you know we we can sometimes look at kids who are eighteen, nineteen, and twenty years old and think they're so hard and and think that there's no way you can break through. And the question I always have is, well, but where were people when they were twelve? Where were people when they were thirteen? When we actually really could have made a huge difference. And that's when you know one of the things I, I, I have loved about this book have have been actually you know the nonprofits that we've worked with, and uh, and you know and in the back of the book it's actually a list of over two hundred organizations around the country that are actually doing the work, that are on the ground and actually helping to shape the destinies of kids in the neighborhoods they live in. Uh, because I realize that we actually have so much potency, both as individuals and as a society, as long as we're willing to engage and as long as we're willing to in, in, involve ourselves in it. So I think if, if I could address the mentor situation in West, and if we could have also addressed the education situation uh, in, in his life and, and making sure that he finished school and make sure that he took that seriously, getting that degree, I think we could have made the world a difference in, in, the, in the final product and, and some of the decisions that he made. What are you doing these days in, in that regard? I mean, yeah. you're, you're constantly pointed to as a role model, kid from Baltimore in the South Bronx makes good. Um, so, so, so how are you using that background? Well, one thing I, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a firm believer in in the virtue of public service, and and I you know, and I don't just espouse that in what I say, but really in everything that I do. Um, you know, I have I have not there's actually an organization that we created back in Baltimore called Stan, which stands for Students Taking a New Direction, and we basically work with kids who are first and second time offenders who were who are involved in the juvenile justice system in Baltimore, and a lot because of my background and the background of so many kids that I see around me. I'm I'm also I work with uh, with quite a few nonprofits uh, to. Include the network for teaching entrepreneurship, which uh, which helps kids how not to be employees but how to be employers. And uh, in Iraq, Afghanistan, veterans of America, we work with veterans and their families, uh, both as, as people are coming back home, but then also working with their families as they're away overseas fighting. But also, and there's two different nonprofit organizations that are receiving a significant portion of all proceed, book proceeds, um, you know, for this book. One is an organization called City Year, which is uh, a group that gives young people a chance to have a year of, of public service and helps them to be part of something. Bigger than themselves, and the other nonprofit is an organization called the U.S. Dream Academy, which works with young people who have one or both parents who are incarcerated, so one or both parents who are behind bars, uh, and so 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 these are just some of the things that I'm very involved in different mentorship programs, but just really helping making sure that um, people understand their potency and understand that we really actually can make a difference in the lives of others as long as we're willing to actually do it, as long as we're actually willing to to push it. You know, one thing my mother always says which I think is completely true. She says, kids need to think that you care before they care what you think. And, and, and I really try to make it my point uh, in everything that I do to show young people that, that, that we care and we're willing to work with you as long as you're willing to, to reach out your hand and, and, and meet us halfway. What about your, your, your business career? How does that fit in? You said you're with an investment group. I've read that you're with Citigroup. Yeah. How does that square with your your civic mindedness and all that philanthropic stuff? Yeah, well, I've, I've actually been I've been back here for about um back here for about three years now, and it's interesting because I, after I left Washington, I was serving as a White House fellow, and uh, you know one of the things I realized while serving as a White House fellow was how important a how important the policy discussion was, but then also I learned how important understanding the, this world of business was to the policy conversation, and uh, I, I saw how many of the decisions that were being made in, in Washington in the world of policy in so many cases kind of revolved around this idea of business and the idea of finance. Um, so many major decisions uh, that had that as, as their foundation 
for how the decisions were made. And I knew this was something that I wanted to understand better. I, I wanted to learn it. I, I wanted to feel like I, I learned the vocabulary and that no one could ever talk over my head when they're talking about these these issues. And and so, you know, I even look at the way things happen have uh, transpired over the past couple of years. Um, you know, with the, with this, you know, with this unbelievable fall of the of the global financial system. And and uh, one thing I, I can say now is that I really feel like not only do I have a better understanding of of, of what happened, I also have a better understanding of, of what it would take to keep it from happening again. And so I've been I, I've actually been um, you know just uh, really pleased with the education that I've, I've received up here about the way this industry works, uh, the way business works, international business works, and and what that means in terms of a larger policy conversation. What's your ultimate goal then in the financial world? Well, in, in the financial world, I mean, in many cases, uh, it, it's just that. It's really just it's to get that education. It's to understand what's going on, and I think I've really had a chance to uh, to do that now. Um, Long-term ultimate goals, you know, quite honestly, it's, you know, one, one thing that I always have to, you know, remind myself is, is uh, you know, my father passed away when he was 34 years old. And, uh, and and I think there's a lot of lessons that I learned from that. But but one lesson I really learned was uh, was that long term plans are never the best use of our time. Uh, so uh, so one thing. So as as I thought about that, I, I really said to myself, you know what, you know, I I don't know what long term goals are, long term plans are. But what I know is uh, I'm going to make every day while I'm here matter. And I'm going to make every day while I'm here uh, make a difference to, to, to someone else. I had a, uh, a colonel in military school who um, who was one of the toughest people you'd ever meet, but uh, he got diagnosed with a, with um, with uh, with cancer and he had to leave the school. And uh, he said something to the court cadets in his farewell address that I'll never forget. He said, "When it's time for you to leave here, when it's time for you to to, to leave, and whether that be leave the school or you know, leave your job or leave this planet, you make sure that it mattered that you were ever here." And, and that's and I took that seriously, and that's what uh, what I'm just going to continue to try to do. Just make sure that matter that I was ever here. Now, your grandfather, when he was um, in college, you know, as I mentioned earlier, he met Kwame Nkrumah, yeah. uh, who who would become the the first uh, Black African president uh, of an independent African nation. Uh, and uh, Kwame Nkrumah wanted to get your your grandfather into politics. Yeah. Uh, now I'm guessing there are people who want to get you into politics. Yeah. Uh, given your amazing resume, your educational honors, your sports honors, your military service, White House fellow under Condoleezza Rice, you spoke at the Democratic Convention uh, in support of Barack Obama. Um, what's your political future? Uh, there, there, there is. I, I have no. I really have no desire to to get involved inside of politics, and and uh, and, and definitely not now, if ever. Um, but I also know that I'm committed to to serving the public, and and whether it was my time working in in the White House, or uh, whether it was my time serving in Afghanistan with the 82nd Airborne, or whether it was uh, serving in communities that uh, that I've lived and worked in for for over a decade. I mean, this is some. This is who I am. And this is something I firmly believe is just a part of my DNA, and, and and I have a tremendous amount of respect for for many people that that run for public office and that, that take on those positions. But I also know that we do ourselves a, a significant disservice as a, as a public when we think that we need to rely on on those who hold office 
to, um, to solve some of the most pressing issues of our society. I think we have the potency to do it ourselves um, as long as we're willing to, to step up and take on that task. So, uh, so, um, so yeah, so, so my, my big thing about politics is that, or, or about, you know, about, about that world, is, uh, is that public service uh, doesn't have to be an occupation, but it really should be a way of life. I should add that you're also very telegenic, so there's another plus. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm betting that if you mean it, what you say about not wanting to go into politics, and you probably have to say no to a lot of people who urge you to. Yeah, but you know, but but I, I, again, one thing I, one thing I also firmly believe when when people do say that, and I'm, and I'm extraordinarily humbled by it. So I, I'm not, ta- I don't take that lightly, uh, and I and I don't think that you know, I don't take it as people being glib or uh, or being disingenuous when they say it. And I, so I am extraordinarily humbled by it. But one thing I also believe is is that you know there are causes that we can support. Uh, that can really make a difference in the world, and is, and 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 I am willing to be part of the solution. I am willing to be part of um you know of the of this of this larger movement. But if I decide or someone decides that they don't want to do it through an elected office, that shouldn't in any way take away the the, the potency or the legitimacy of that statement. So more likely to see you in charge of or or as part of a foundation or something like that than in uh, elected office. Yeah, I mean, I, I, want, I want to be part of the conversation. I, I really do. And again, how that how that takes on, you know, what, what that takes on, whether it be with a foundation or or or, or something from the, from social innovation or, or something from the political realm, I, you know, or something appointed. I I really have no idea yet, but I know that that leadership matters to me, and social innovation matters to me, and 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 having a voice and having a platform to use that voice that matters to me. Uh, and those will be the principles that I'll use to guide uh, whatever roles I take on in the future. Well, since you won't be uh, running for office, at least uh, you don't think you will, uh, then I'll leave out any um, glib comparisons of your book to uh, Dreams of My Father. <laughs> but but there, is, there is some comparison to be made there. Do you feel um, you know, some connections with, with President Obama and his background? I, I um, even when I hear people people say that again, it's it's one of those things that's extraordinarily humbling, uh, because I just uh, have a tremendous amount of re- respect for for his story, and uh, and and his background. But um, but no, the the uh, the comparisons of dreams of my father were in no way in my mind uh, when I put together this book. But um, but but to put together something that I thought could be useful and I thought could be helpful, and and you know, and just just by judging by the reactions or responses that I've gotten to this book so far, they have been so humbling. Uh, you know, you have. You know, I had a, a mother and a son two weeks ago who came up to me at a, at, a, at a book festival who said they were reading the book together, and at the end, as soon as they were done reading it, they were going to talk about the big lessons from the book, and then they were going to volunteer with one of the organizations in the back of the book. Or I had a 14-year-old from Baltimore who, um, who, who, read the, who said one of his friends made him read the book, and this young man had been in and out of the juvenile justice system uh, throughout his young life. And he said uh, his friend made him read the book, and this is the first book he'd ever read cover to cover. And he said, but this is the first time he wanted to write me because it's the first time in his life that he'd ever really thought about the type of man that he wanted to become and the impact that he wanted to make for his family. Uh, so when you get messages like that, you get the woman who lives in South Carolina who took the bus all the way, the Greyhound bus, from South Carolina to Atlanta, Georgia, just because she knew she heard I was going to be in Atlanta, Georgia, and she did it because she wanted to tell me about an organization that she's working with and why she thought I should, I should know about it. You hear stories like that, and it just shows you that, you know what, the whole process was worth it. It was tough, it was arduous, but it, I really feel like it's making a difference, and, and that's what's so exciting. How, how does uh, Wes Moore's family feel about it? You know, it did, well, when I Wes had a chance to read it months ago, uh, before the book even even uh, even was out, and he had he had two main reactions to it. Uh, the the first thing he said was he just amazed him how much research went into it. Uh, he said because you know I did over two hundred hours of of interviews with him and his friends and family and my friends and family, um, so it amazed him how I got the stories right. 
Um, but I think the other thing that, that, um, that he said, which really hit me, was he said after getting a chance to read about his life um, in that way, it, uh, it amazed him how little that he's done with his life. Mm. Mm. Um, when you were in Afghanistan as a captain with the 82nd Airborne, yeah. Uh, in addition to participating in some combat missions, you are also part of an effort called uh, the Afghan Reconciliation Program. Yeah, program to Akhil Sul. That's right. Yeah, I, I help I help spearhead the uh, the American uh, support plan to it. And, and, and describe what that was about. It was basically it was a, a program where uh, where uh, where insurgents, so whether they were Taliban or Hig or or, or Al Qaeda, uh, many of whom were on the Pakistan side of the border, we would then help to bring them back to the Afghan side of the border as long as they were willing to turn their weapons and pledge allegiance to the new Afghan government, and uh, and it was pretty amazing because uh, you know the, a lot of these people were were, were hardened fighters, and and you're talking about when you're talking about Afghanistan, you're talking about a country that's been in a constant state of war for 30 years and a sporadic state of war for centuries. Um, and so you're, it wasn't an easy task uh, as we first got over there. But one thing we realized uh, once, once we first got over there is that it, the only way it was going to be successful is if we were willing to use local knowledge and local assets to really help to get the message out, because I think there was a lot of miscommunication uh, that, was, that, was, um, that were keeping people from trusting the process. And uh, so it was an extraordinary period of, of my life where you really get a chance to see international relations um, at its best and international relations on the ground, and not just how the policymakers make the policy, but also how the practitioners actually in- implement the policy. Is this program still going on? Uh, yes, it is. Yes, in fact, uh, they've actually now incorporated in, in many of the other different um, different areas of Afghanistan. I was actually on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan, but now they've incorporated in a collection of different areas in the country. And, and has it had success bringing uh, Taliban fighters back into the fold, so to speak? It has. I, I think you, you have inherent challenges with the program, and I think a lot of those challenges uh, you know, are, are being addressed and have been addressed both by, both by the Allied forces, but then also by the Afghan forces. But I think it has, because I think what it's doing is it's just showing there is a path, that, um, that there, there, aren't, there aren't only two options of getting out of that type of situation, where the one option is you either stay separated from your family, or you either go back in combat and, and end up becoming a casualty of the war. So what you're doing is you're just showing that there are other avenues of approach uh, to take on, and I think it's been very successful and helping to do that. But I think the key and the crucial point to that is just making sure that you have solid partners within the Afghan government to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may be a little bit facile to make a comparison here, but this this uh, idea that Taliban are not necessarily Taliban once and for all, that they can be changed, seems similar to your belief in human nature in general, that... Uh, Change is possible. Absolutely, and, and you know, and I now, and I'm not naive about the situation, n- neither in Afghanistan nor nor in, in, in certain uh, urban and rural areas in this country. I mean, you have certain people that are, um, you know, you have certain people that just they they are there. There is no coming back from where they are, and I and I get that, and I understand that, and I and I understand that there's a different way that you, that you need to address them and deal with them. But the the vast majority of people, uh, you know, I always believe that even our worst actions don't remove us from the circle of humanity. And there is a way to actually be able to impede. There is a way to actually be able to uh, to intervene and bring people and bring people around, particularly younger people. And that's why it's so tough for me when I see us, you know, I see us, you know, both in, in the situation of what happens overseas, but even here domestically, when we give up on people who are, who are barely even old enough to understand who they are. Yet, um, and so that's where I think we can make a real crucial dent in terms of both the short term and, but more importantly, the long term health and stability of our country and all of our neighbors. Well, Wes, thank you very much for your time today. 
The pleasure's been absolutely all mine, and, and th- thank you for everything that you're doing. You can learn more about Westmore's book at theotherwestmore.com. And if you want to learn more about this program, go to 7thAvenueProject.com. We've got information, audio of current and past shows, and other good stuff for you. So check it out. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and I'll be back next week. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Great.